leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty alongside Anthony Brown. I am Garrett Bouquet. Thank you so much for listening. On this episode, we are going to be getting into our most intriguing NBA what-if scenarios. Uh, and uh, before we get into that, though, we did want to recognize that the the March Madness season is well underway, and that's uh, kind of what everybody's talking about a little bit. So we wanted to just do a little brief discussion on that and mm-hmm. comparing why maybe the casual fan is a little bit more excited about March Madness than they are, for instance, say, the NBA playoffs. Uh, Anthony, what do you think maybe some of the, the key reasons are for that? Um, yeah, when I every time I talk to the normal lay, lay fan, they're always saying that. Uh, I think it's probably with NBA players, they're getting paid a lot. They see NBA players as, like, big celebrities. They don't really care about winning or something, which I think if you actually watch the NBA playoffs, they're playing really, really hard, especially compared to uh, regular season games. Yeah, there's this, uh, you know, false idea that college players, because they're not getting paid, there's somehow more of a love for the game, when in reality, you know, I I don't think that could be further from the truth. Not that college players don't love it, but the idea that NBA players don't care. And I don't want to suggest that all NBA players just love the game a lot. Some of them just were probably so talented and realized that was a way to make money. Right. So, but that that happens in every workplace uh, across any industry. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same happens in college where a guy realizes he can get a... Or a guy or a girl realizes they can get a full ride right. <laughs> based off the talents they have, but they don't necessarily love what they do. Exactly. So it, it happens in both. Yeah, but yeah, this misconception that it's more pure because they don't get paid I think is ridiculous uh and I think the other one might just be like uh I guess if you follow a college team more than you know an NBA team like if if you really love Ohio State for instance and you just follow all their stuff then you might get to root for Ohio State through the tournament every year but Again, with the NBA, if you're a Cavs fan, you might just root for the Cavs every time they're in there. I, I don't really see the difference there. What do you think? Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's the whole thing about the idea that March Madness is single elimination versus the NBA playoffs That's is a, a big series. Yeah. And I think for a casual fan, I understand why a single game, and that's why, you know, a Super Bowl gets... Mm-hmm 
great ratings. I think even last year or this year's Super Bowl was uh, had as high a ratings as the entire NBA Finals combined. Wow. You know, so uh, there is something to the fact that people in, you know, especially the non-hardcore fans, which we don't qualify, <laughs> uh, you know, they yeah. are... Uh, you know, less interested in seeing a seven-game series as right. opposed to just saying, okay, whoever wins this one game, yeah. we can just make one party out of it one night. Uh, you right. know, makes it a lot more intriguing for someone that does isn't necessarily into it for the long haul. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, yeah, if the NBA playoffs was all single elimination, that would make it so crazy. Oh, yeah. Um yeah, uh, so I could definitely see that aspect. You know, every game, something else could happen crazy. If someone hits a buzzer beater, it's not just, oh, well, they get to go to L.A. for the next game, and it's game two. No, it's over. Right. The number one seed is out now, <laughs> yeah. which actually happened with this uh, March Madness. That well, yeah, What happened 16, with it the first time? The first time, I think the record for one seeds over 16 now is like, 135 and one or something like that <laughs> something insane. Uh, so, yeah. yeah so and they got destroyed i think they got beat by about 20 i think it was virginia mm-hmm. that lost but uh yeah there's something to the idea that just one game and the fact that one game elimination again leads to the crazy uh you know uh, variables that can come into play when again a seven game series takes away a lot of those variables if one right. team just plays out of their mind one game it doesn't mean they win the series they just win a game and the other team you know still can say okay they they played out of their mind and beat us one time they've got to do that three more times right you know and if we believe we're the better team you know the the numbers are going to bear it out that we'll probably win still right uh so yeah there's that randomness and also the people being able to fill out the bracket uh, you know, for, yeah. again, for a seven-game series, isn't as interesting to do that <laughs> and to pick, like, oh, they'll win four games to two versus just, oh, this team's going to advance and, and, and so, yeah. so on and so forth. It also makes, you know, the sort of the, the gambling thing more of a uh, <laughs> more of a priority on, on the college side as well. That's probably a really big part of it, too, <laughs> is that people love to, to gamble on it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this before that uh, I am – biased kind of leaning more towards the nba because i like watching the best of the best talent play mm-hmm. against each other and yes. uh I, I feel like maybe the regular fan maybe doesn't want to see that they just want to see a bunch of college kids you know um maybe it's more relatable to see that uh you know they're just working hard going to school and now they're gonna try and win a big title as opposed to the guy who's getting paid millions of dollars to play i i would with the NFL, too. I'm like that. I want to watch the best of the best people go at each other. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, the, the one of the things that college basketball kind of had going for it was, at least in the past, prior to the one and done, which we right. talked about last time on the, the rule changes episodes, uh, the idea that you could, as a fan of any of the college teams, you could say, okay, these guys are going to be who I follow for the next four years. But that's no longer the case. A lot of times, especially if you're a Kentucky <laughs> Wildcat fan, yeah. you're watching a whole new team every year. And it's to me, that would be a lot harder if you're just rooting for a specific team to really feel attached to that group of players. Right. Exactly. That's, you know, Ohio State's my favorite, you know, college team usually, but I don't know any of their players because mm-hmm. it just, it 
changes every few years, like you're saying. So it's hard for me to root for a team when I don't know who's on that team. You're you're more rooting for the brand than you are for uh, anything else, which right. is fine if that's what you're into. It just, yeah. Well, and the idea that when a rookie comes to an NBA club, most of the time, as long as the the team doesn't trade that guy, they've got that guy for a minimum of five years because of the rookie contract. Right. The rookie right. contract in the NBA essentially makes it so that anyone that signs then is is under a rookie scale salary for four years, and then at the end of the fourth year, they become a restricted free agent. And mm-hmm. usually, a lot of times, they'll then sign up, if the team likes the player, for another five years. So most of the time, you'll have a guy for nine, but the minimum would be if the guy wasn't pleased with where he was at, he could sign a one-year deal then. Yeah. Because as a restricted free agent, the team that uh, controls you has matching rights. So any contract you sign with another team, they then can match. Gotcha. Uh, So the NBA has what the college game used to have of, you know, Mm -hmm. oh, this is a player that's on this team, and I'm going to be able to follow him for the next four or five years. Yeah. I, yeah, I just like the NBA a little bit better, personally. Right, and I, so. I'm I'm completely with you in terms of wanting to watch the best of the best. And one of the things going to a different sport that I watch a lot mm-hmm. is uh, tennis. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the the ATP, which is the Association of Tennis Professionals, the male tennis uh, game, uh, is combined with the WTA, the Women's okay. Tennis Association. Yeah, and. That doesn't really work for me, especially during like the broadcasts of them playing the tennis because they'll sometimes go to the, the WTA. Right. They'll show equal 50-50 in terms of their broadcast time. Yeah, yeah. And to me, it's like, no, I, I want to watch the ATP, not because I prefer men over women, nothing like that. It's right. just literally the, the men are you're, better. You're the f- ATP is a better tennis product. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's what I'd rather watch. You know, if there was a combination on a broadcast of the ATP and Division One men's college tennis, <laughs> I want to watch the ATP. Right, you're saying, yeah, you're in it for this one as opposed to it switching over to another one, not all tennis is... Yeah, right. I get what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm... I didn't realize those were two different uh, leagues. Uh that's what you're of, saying with with the men's and the the women's one. Yeah. Well, they travel together. Okay. Um, but obviously, the the women play only against the women. The WTA play against the, themselves. Gotcha. And the ATP. But yeah, they go to the same tournaments a lot of times and and split the the television rights and a, and a lot of that sort of thing. Right. 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 Um, but but I'm I'm in complete agreement that I I love the NBA and I've strayed away from college basketball more because. It's it's a better product, and if mm-hmm. you're going to spend a ton of time and a ton of hours like we have watching a sport, you might as well watch the best you can. And, and it goes for any form of entertainment. Like, if I'm trying to watch movies, I'm not going out of my way to see a bad movie. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm going to want to watch stuff that looks interesting to me, that seems like it's well done and well made. Right. Uh, and it's the same for sports. Right. Now, that being said... March Madness is pretty cool, yes. and I get why a lot of people would be in it. I mean, people. Are, um, uh, one of the guys at work is constantly showing me clips of you know, hey, this buzzer beater just happened, and oh man, this crazy upset happened. So yeah, I I get it. Um, but it's it's interesting when I'm like, yeah, I usually watch the NBA playoffs, and it's like, oh, why would you watch that? It's it seems like it's a very you know black or white. Either you're 
you want this or the other ones. Right, and yeah, like when when we say we prefer the NBA, that we just still that <laughs> means that we prefer to watch that, but that doesn't mean we like that and hate everything else. Right. <laughs> Same with the ATP and WTA. Exactly. I don't hate exactly. watching the WTA. I just prefer the ATP. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting, and yeah, like the March Madness, just the just the sheer fact that there are, especially on that opening Thursday and Friday of the tournament, that there are four games at the same time, right. and the couple year, the change they made a couple of years ago with the television rights and how they made it so that uh, the CBS, TBS, uh, TNT, and True TV all combined to do the coverage. So oh. that you could watch every game and, and flip the channels and, and yeah. see anything you wanted to see. That was an amazing addition. It used wow. to be it was just on CBS. You could only watch the game they were playing. You had to go online to, to oh, see whatever yeah. else. Uh, but those changes they made is so awesome. And yeah, just having that much basketball in such a short period of time is so much fun. Right. And and yes, the single elimination makes things really exciting. It also adds up to a lot of teams choking down the stretch mm-hmm. because there's so much pressure that they have to win that game. <laughs> You're up 5 with a minute left. You've got the ball and they press. You know, there's there's so much on the line there whereas in the regular season, you know, maybe you're a little calmer in that scenario. Very true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's all we have for the uh, th- that little segment that we're, we're going to start the show with. But let's now get into our uh, NBA-related what-ifs. Oh, yeah. And we've got a bunch <laughs> of these different ones, and we've, we've kind of forecasted uh, throughout the episodes that we've done a, a couple <laughs> of ideas of these that we wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. So... I'm going to start with my favorite, (laughs) and uh, one of the ones that I think has a pretty big, uh, that could have changed things drastically in terms of the legends of the game, the dynasties, and all of that, is Arvita Sabonis coming to the Portland Trailblazers the year he was drafted, which I believe, if I remember correctly, was 1986. I think you're right. Yeah. And... Uh, he didn't, in in reality, he didn't end up coming over till 1995. Mm-hmm. And this was after uh, he had played through several injuries, including an Achilles injury that he ended eventually tore. Yeah. And was, uh, you know, nowhere near the level of player when he eventually came to the NBA that he was just a decade earlier. And the the Sabonis of 1986 through even... Uh, you know, the early 90s was one of, if not the best big men in the in the, the world of basketball. Yeah, and I get how anyone listening might be like, uh, what are you talking about, this dude? Uh, as, during that time, we're talking about Hakeem Olajuwon, David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> like, we're talking about some of the greatest and best centers of all time, and... We mean it when we say Arvita Sabonis may very well have been the best of all of them. Well, and speaking to that, too, you know, Shaquille O'Neal and even a Patrick Ewing in the mid to late or mid to late 80s were still really young right. and hadn't hit their, their peak yet. Very true. So yeah, I just yeah. wanted to clarify that Right, as well. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, talk a little bit about uh, Sabonis as a player. Like, his player profile, I think, is really interesting. So... The Sabonis, the casual fans, or even just the NBA fans that didn't follow any of the European stuff, uh, the Sabonis you saw with Portland when he eventually came was just this, 
huge, like, 290-pound guy that just uh, would lumber up and down the floor, could could hit some threes, was still a solid passer, uh, but was just this humongous man that didn't really have much mobility whatsoever. Right. Uh, but in his prime, he was actually a pretty skinny guy he was you know he was still strong yeah but you know he was a guy that could run up and down the floor really well he could move his feet yep. uh, he could drive to the basket and finish he could dunk over people he yep. could posterize guys and he'd still had those skills that he displayed later in his career yeah. the three-point shooting the passing the ball handling exactly all of those sorts of things uh were just uh really impressive and the, the idea of a center, especially in that era, with all of those skills, plus the traditional center skills of the solid rebounding, right. shot blocking, and, and setting screens, uh, you know, he was the total package. Oh, yeah. I think it would have been scary to see that in the NBA. Uh, you know, he was, what, 7'4"? Yes. 7'4", right? So, for reference, I want to say David Robinson was, what, 7'1"? Hakeem yeah. might have been like 6'11", 7 foot. Shaq is like 7'1". This dude's 7'4". Yeah. So he's that much taller and strong for his size, but mm-hmm. able to move. Uh, and the way I found out about him, you know, talking to you in college, uh, I think there was uh, that video on YouTube of maybe the 1984 Olympics. Or 88, Or 88 actually. Olympics. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Where it's uh, Russia versus the U.S. team, and it's a very young David Robinson and Patrick Ewing getting demolished by Arvita Sabonis. I mean, just posterizing those two, blocking their shots, making them look like, you know, just run-of-the-mill centers. Right. And these are legends of the game uh, that in the U.S. are just doing all that to the American players. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very possible and probable that if he was in the NBA, we'd be talking about him. And what do you think that does for Portland's team? Well, and that's that's what's so interesting about all this is his timing not only was bad in terms of he came after he had suffered injuries and wasn't nearly as good, but also the Portland franchise was not in nearly as good of a position. Right. If he comes in 86, Portland has Clyde Drexler, right. you know, up and coming, already really a star shooting guard, right. but a guy that's about to hit his peak in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. And you've got later in that Portland run, you had guys like Terry Porter and Jerome Kersey. Uh, You know, you just had a really solid team. Yeah. Uh, and... You throw Arvita Sabonis <laughs> in with those guys. And don't forget, Portland made the NBA Finals in 1990, mm-hmm. lost to the Detroit Pistons, one of the greatest teams ever, Right, those bad boy teams. 91, they lose in the conference finals to the Lakers, but that was a 63-win team yeah. in the regular season. <laughs> really great. Yeah. And in 92, lose in the finals to the Bulls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again... Lost to the Bulls in six games, one of the more competitive final series that Jordan was in, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone talks about the Jordan-Drexler matchup where I would say, yeah, Jordan got the best of that, but it was close. That Portland team was really good. Yeah. A lot of firepower on that team just in terms of the athletes. And, I mean, oh, man, there's just so many things that that team could do. Throwing that, throwing that at them. And they didn't have Arvita Sabonis down right. low either. And that's the one place... 
uh, throughout the 90s that those Bulls teams were always weak at. You know, they always had your Bill Cartwrights, Bill Wennington's, Luke Longley's at center. If you had a dominant center in there, you had a really good chance of taking down that Bulls team. Arvidas Sabonis would be perfect for that. Right. And not only do you have, yes, a player that can take advantage of the one's Bulls weakness, but as you said with Drexler, a guy that plays the position of Jordan that, yes, never outplayed Jordan, but at the same time was good enough that he wasn't going to get demolished by that matchup. Right. And so, you know... Uh, I I would say that the Bulls probably would be demolished by the Sabonis matchup. (laughs) Yeah. So you look at that, and to me, not only would I say that Portland would probably be the favorites in that series against not only the Bulls, but I would say they would have then been the favorites in the 91 series they lost to the Lakers, Mm -hmm. and also the favorites to the Pistons. And say even that they win just those three titles... You take a couple titles away from Jordan, you take one from the bad boy Pistons, you give three to that Portland era, and all of a sudden, aside from maybe those Celtics and Lakers teams of the 80s, that Portland team is who we're talking about now. Exactly. Oh yeah, Uh, that's definitely a game changer in terms of NBA history, it's crazy. Well, and you know the idea that Sabonis, with his teams in Europe, uh, ended up getting hurt and playing on injuries and, and... you know, further injuring himself and making it so that, again, he wasn't, you know, he was still a solid role player in the mid to late 90s when he came to Portland. Mm -hmm. Uh, But say if he plays and is in the NBA, I think NBA teams with their medical staffs and all those things and realizing when a guy's hurt, it's better to rest him. Perhaps his career even extends and he's still a superstar in the mid to late 90s and extends that Portland run. Mm -hmm. And a guy like Drexler then doesn't leave for Houston in the mid-90s because he was still a really solid guy. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, even though, yes, you'd say definitely he makes them have a really great shot in those early 90s seasons. Right. But even he could have probably extended him into the mid-90s as well. I think you're right. I'm thinking of like a, you know, Dirk Nowitzki, Dirk Nowitzki now with his ability to shoot, and as old as he is, I mean, we've joked about that, like, Nowitzki could just keep playing until he's, like, 50, right? And he'll still be a good offensive player. He's terrible defensively, but yeah. (laughs) With his jump shot, he could still be a good offensive guy. uh, If only there was, like, in baseball, the designated hitter uh, in the NBA, where you could just say, okay, offensively he gets to play, and then somebody else plays on defense. He could play till he was 50, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, so I'm thinking of that in the 90s. That would be insane. Well, and what's the quote from, I think, is it Bill Walton uh, about Sabonis? Did you say that already? Oh, that he's a, and I didn't, yeah. but uh, it, that he was a 7-4 Larry Bird. That's insane to think about. A 6-9 Larry Bird is scary enough. Like <laughs> 7-4 is, like, unstoppable. Um, yeah, he's also one of my favorite what-ifs, to be mm-hmm. honest. Like, I think that would have been real exciting to watch. Now, uh, the next one we're going to get into, and this is, you know, more of a sad story to talk about, but a guy like Drazen Petrovic, who was another really stud quality player from Europe that came to the NBA and actually, unlike Sabonis, came pretty early in his career. Mm -hmm. And uh, he started in actually with those Portland teams. Right. Uh, right, And that shows you how talented those Portland teams were, (laughs) that he couldn't get on the floor. Right. Uh, He eventually was able to 
get traded to the New Jersey Nets mm -hmm. and was really great for them, made an all-star team and was averaging over 20 a game, was kind of a, I would describe him as a Reggie Miller type of player, yeah. uh, maybe a little bit more off-the-bounce ability than Miller had, yeah. but a guy that could run off screens, hit threes on the move, and uh, was a real competitive guy as well, oh, had yeah. a real fiery streak to him. Oh, for sure. I think Reggie Miller has said in, in interviews that he's the best shooter that he played against. Mm -hmm. um, that he, I mean, And that's coming from one of the greatest shooters of all time, that he had that type of respect for him. Um, and there's some games I've seen that were battles with Petrovic and uh, Jordan. I can't remember when it was, but there's one in particular that stands out where they're going shot for shot. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Well, and for those of you that don't know, he ended up, unfortunately dying in a fatal car crash mm -hmm. uh at the age of i think 23 or something you know just a super sad story but he was a guy that everyone that uh, that played with him and was teammates with him even in in portland when he was on the bench danny ainge mentioned a couple times that this guy his work ethic was crazy he mm -hmm. it uh, it almost you know most guys if they're not playing they kind of just sulk and <laughs> you know just uh, you know go home and have a glass of wine, but he used that as motivation to work even harder to get yeah. better. And a guy at that age that already had had done that much in the NBA, if he was able to play a, an entire career, we could be talking about him in the likes of a Reggie Miller, Ray Allen, right. perhaps even better than those guys if he would have gotten to uh, to play out his career. Yeah, really sad. <laughs> uh, the um, and I'm just going to mention that we're going to kind of go out of order here we're not doing this in any particular order we sure. just kind of wrote down a bunch of these as, yeah. we, as we were thinking about them but mm -hmm. the next one i had in mind was the uh the 1989 cleveland cavaliers and the what if about that team yeah um the cavaliers that season were a 57 win team uh, i believe offensively uh in terms of offensive efficiency i think they were eighth or ninth in the nba and first or second in defense they had four guys that scored between 17 and 19 points a game in Brad Doherty, Mark Price, Larry Nance, and uh, Ron Harper. And a perfect combination of guys that are all different right. in terms of Mark Price is kind of that Steve Nash-like, really great shooter, mm -hmm. but good ball handlers well can run the pick and roll. Larry Nance, kind of the guy that could run the pick and roll as the roll man mm -hmm. and be really athletic. Doherty, more of the post-up post guy, and Ron Harper, more of the slasher. Yeah. Uh, and then you had even, you know, veterans and role players like a Craig Elo, who was a 39% three-point shooter. Right. Uh, a hot Rod Williams, who was a really good big man off the bench that averaged double figures. Mm -hmm. So the team had great balance, were great defensively, had great size. Yeah. Uh, and they were a team that that season, you know, that was the season the, the Pistons, the bad boy Pistons, won the title. And the Cavs, I believe that year, I read a book by Jack McCloskey, who uh, was the general manager of that Pistons group and built that bad boys team. Yeah. Uh, you know, he talked about in his book how he was deathly afraid of that Cavs team. Wow. I think the Cavs went 6-0 and against Detroit that season, if I remember correctly. That's crazy. Uh, wow. So they were kind of the Pistons' kryptonite, and fortunately the Pistons had enough defensively, enough guys they could throw at Jordan to slow him down. Mm -hmm. But that was the one weakness that Cavs' team had, is they didn't have... And, you know, 
I would say 28 <laughs> out of the 30 teams in the in the NBA today would have that weakness <laughs> of not having a guy that can slow down Jordan. Right. And Jordan single-handedly with that that uh, what they call the shot in Cleveland. Right. Hit that shot at the buzzer. Uh, to beat the Cavs in the decisive Game Five of that series and knock them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's weird for I'm sure a lot of people to say you know a team that lost in the first round maybe would have won the title, but I think that's legitimately the case here. Yeah, for sure. I mean that Cavs team was heavily favored in that matchup. I mean Jordan, you know, was always very spiteful and competitive, and uh, there's a story about him uh, before Game Five. He goes, uh, for game one or whatever, he goes to the first critic and he's like, we're going to take you down. And then second one, we're going to take you down. Third one in that game five is like, now we're coming for you. And then he hits that game winning shot. Everyone's like, wow, Jordan, you're so like cool. I'm like, well, that Cavs team almost beat you. <laughs> There's a reason why you had to take a last second shot to win. Right. Like, I mean, Craig Elo, I think, hit like two would have been game winners in that sh- in that game. Yeah. Um, well, and... You mentioned the game one. The Bulls won game one in Cleveland okay. uh, because I believe Mark Price, one of the key reasons Mark Price didn't play in game one. He was coming off, a, I think, an ankle injury of some sort. Mm. Uh, so the Bulls took game one. Cleveland takes game two. Game three, Elo's not there. He's missing because of an injury or maybe it might have been even an illness. Yeah. So he misses game three. Bulls win that in Chicago. Yeah. Then Cleveland wins game four in Chicago to bring it back to Cleveland for game five. Right. And then, as you said, Jordan puts on that majestic performance and hits the impossible shot over Elo where he hangs in the air, double clutches. <laughs> And yes, uh, you know, the Cavs also had a really good coach in Lenny Wilkins, one right. of the greatest coaches of all time. Right. I think top five still in NBA history and wins as a coach. Uh, and he drew up a great play right before the Jordan shot yeah. where Elo was the inbounder. He gets it in and then he cut to the basket, got mm-hmm. it and laid it in with three seconds left. Right. Uh, so, you know, uh, Elo was, you know, a solid player. He, uh, you know, played the game the right way. And then on that final Jordan shot, you know, the reason he had to double pump is because Elo's contest was about as good as you could possibly make <laughs> right. on a shooter. Uh, but Jordan just having that superior athleticism able to just hang in the air for what seemed like forever right? and knock the shot down. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great what if. I mean, I did not know that uh, the Pistons were 0-6 against this team. That's incredible. <laughs> well, and, you know, that 92 Cavs team that made the Eastern Conference Finals that some may say just because they advanced further were the better team, it was basically that same group minus Ron Harper. Right. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, and you had an older Larry Nance and a Mark Price that had suffered, I believe, an ACL injury. So they weren't mm. nearly as good just about in any way as that 89 team. Right. They just, you know, had some favorable matchups and were able to advance further. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, you talk about the, the 89 Pistons, and then when they got to the finals, they faced a Lakers team that ended up getting hurt a lot, had a bunch of injuries, and were right. able to sweep the Lakers. So, you know, you, you factor in if the Cavs... You know, played really well against the Pistons. They get through that series. They would have been the favorites against the Lakers team, especially a Lakers team that had a very aging Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, were kind of past the prime in terms of those prime '80s Lakers teams. Yeah, that's that's insane. Because now I'm thinking of like you know LeBron coming in and uh, that that 2016 team. 
that was, you know, the first Cavs team to win a, a title. How great of a story that was. Yeah, yeah. It, it was amazing. But if they would have already done that back in 89, like, it, I feel like so much would have changed for the city of Cleveland. Well, and think about all the vitriol LeBron James received when he left. Oh, yeah. A large part, I think, was just the frustration from the city of Cleveland that they hadn't won a title, and he was their best way to get it. Right. But if in 89 they won a title, I'm sure people wouldn't have been happy that he left, but maybe it wouldn't have been as intense as it was. Yeah, people wouldn't have cast him as the villain as much. And <laughs> Burn as, me- as many jerseys. <laughs> Burn as, or, yeah, or what was it, cut it up into pieces and throw it out of the window yeah. and all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Cleveland was very upset. <laughs> yes, um, but yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting one. Uh, the next one I have is the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Oh, yeah. And uh, we've we've already mentioned that at some point we're going to watch that series and do a whole podcast on that series itself because it's one of the best series I've ever seen. It's been a couple years since I've watched the games, but also one of the most controversial. So, you know, you've got yeah. all of these storylines, but then you've also got amazing basketball between two very different types of teams. You've got the Lakers that relied on the superstar players and, and Shaq and Kobe. And then you had this uh, you know, Sacramento team that had all-star caliber players but were more an unselfish, passing-oriented team. Right. Played a really fun style of play. Uh, but that series, uh, you know, the Lakers ended up winning that series in seven games, uh, winning in Sacramento in overtime in Game 7. But uh, in Game 4 is the game where uh, the Sacramento Kings were up 1, and if they win, they go up 3-1 in the series, take a commanding series lead. Right. And, uh, you know, Kobe drives into the basket in the closing seconds, throws up a layup, misses. Shaq gets the rebound, tries to tip it in, misses. Vlade Divac, the center of the Kings, uh, you know, just trying to get the ball the hell out of there just swats it away from the the collection of players. And unfortunately for Sacramento, that collection only consisted of nine players. (laughs) (laughs) And there was a tenth player that was just standing out at the three-point line watching the action. And it happened to be Robert Ory, one of, uh, you know, the most clutch NBA players of all time. And, and, you know, you watch that replay, it's amazing how the ball it just bounces right into the shooting pocket of Robert Ory. <laughs> it was like the most perfect pass you could possibly make. And Ory obviously then steps up and hits the three as time expires to give the Lakers a one-point win. <laughs> uh, you know, just all of the, just that is so crazy as it is that that kept the Lakers into the series and even allowed them to get to a Game 7. But then another reason they were able to get to a Game 7 was because in Game 6, down 3-2 in the series, mm-hmm. uh, in Los Angeles, they got one of the most... Uh, they benefited, the Lakers being right. one of the, the worst officiated games in NBA history, if not the worst. And uh, I read an article essentially breaking down all of the calls and oh, wow. uh you know breaking them into categories like you know a good call or a great a perfect call a good call an okay call a questionable 50-50 call you know a bad call and then horrendous calls yeah there were and generally in in most NBA games there are zero horrendous calls made right um but in this game there have to be four horrendous calls made and okay. all benefited the Lakers 
Hmm. <laughs> yeah. I um, think you might be on to something there yeah, in terms and, of... Yeah, <laughs> and there's... There's questions whether it was actually rigged or not. I don't really care. <laughs> the thing that I care about is, okay, whether it was a rigged game or whether it was just a badly officiated game, the Lakers benefited a great mm-hmm. deal from that officiating. And it was the only reason they were able to get through Game 6 and even get to a Game 7. So that's one of those that are really interesting. Obviously, that was the third championship in the three-peat for the Lakers. Uh, and, you know... Entering that class of three peats, uh, you know, puts you at a different level in terms of being a dynasty and that sort of thing. Right. And, and personally, I think that Sacramento Kings team was better and, and deserved that uh, that series. Yeah, it's it's really sad. I can't wait to actually get to watch it because this is a series I've known about for a while and I've heard about the officiating. Pretty sure um, that uh, Tim Donaghy. There was that controversy where this NBA ref had ties with the mob and was being prosecuted because of that, and it was this whole, you know, NBA-wide controversy with the officiating. Right. I'm pretty sure he was one of the officials during that game and during this series. Well, you know, I'm not positive on that. I think what it was actually was that... He wasn't officiating it, but when he, oh. uh, when they were asking him what games he believed were to be rigged, that the, was... that the 2002 Western Conference Finals was one of the ones he circled. Oh wow! As being questionable in terms of the refereeing. Wow! Uh, so that led to the theory that those games were rigged. Again, you know, it's possible that that happened. Uh, you know, Los Angeles is a much bigger market than Sacramento, mm-hmm. uh, so there, you know, there's. There's uh, there's question marks in you know David Stern, the former NBA commissioner. There's a couple of question marks on his resume, including <laughs> the first NBA draft lottery in 1985, in New York, yeah. where his favorite team, the New York Knicks, benefited and got Patrick Ewing. Uh, and there's envelope, or yes, whatever. there's question marks about that. <laughs> we could do a podcast about that NBA conspiracies, <laughs> yes, with gambling, and right. Oh man. Um, so <laughs> again, like whether that's true or not, the it's a fact that the Lakers benefited from the officiating, Definitely. and that's all that matters to me. Uh, but yeah, the and you you look at that Kings team, and you look at the Kings since then. They've been kind of a disaster of a franchise. Right. Sacramento fans have uh, you know not gotten. Uh, a, a great product over the last decade or so, <laughs> and that team has still, you know, has yet to win a championship. So uh, it, it would have been nice to see in Chris Webber, you know, another guy right. that there's question marks whether, um, you know, that guy is going to make the Hall of Fame or not, and having a championship versus no championships, right. you know, might might have been the difference between him making it or not making it. Right. He was a, he was a really good player. I yeah. mean, yeah, uh, one of the... Was it the Fab Five or Fab Four with uh, yeah, in Michigan? Yeah, the Fab Four, yeah. Um, who was... Uh, well, it really was a Fab Five. I think they called themselves the Fab Five, but really was there was only fab. four real guys <laughs> that were NBA quality. But. Um, and then 2002, was that the New Jersey Nets that the Lakers met yes. up with? In the, mm-hmm. So I would say that Kings team would be able to take that Nets team oh, yeah. in the finals. So. I mean, the Jason Kidd, Kenyon Martin, like that, that was a decent team, but... Certainly, out of the teams that have come out of the East in the past couple of decades, they aren't, you know, at the top of that list by any stretch. And, and yeah, Sacramento, that Kings team has to go down as one of the greatest teams to have not won the title. Yeah, because really they deserve to. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, so the next, uh, the next one, another 
another unfortunate situation in similar uh, ways to the Drazen Petrovich, but uh, Len Bias, uh, yeah. the former Boston Celtic, died of a drug overdose, I believe it was cocaine, in, yep. what was it, 1987? Uh, yeah, 86 and or 87, yeah. He was drafted, I believe, number two overall. Mm-hmm. And I forget the circumstances as to why the Celtics had that high of a draft pick, but essentially it was a team that was coming off the title in 86. Right. That was, you know, and is considered to be the greatest team of all time, adding a number two overall pick in Len Bias. It might have been, Red Arbeck has done that in the past with, like, Larry Bird. I think what they did was um, they drafted Larry Bird a year before he came out of college. And I don't know if this was it for with Len Bias, but I think Red may have done a few trades in order to get that high of a draft pick. Uh, yeah. Um, he was always pretty sneaky when it came to that stuff. But, yeah, right. however it, it ended up, you know, one of the greatest teams of all time now has a Len Bias where there's comparisons with this guy in college to Michael Jordan. Yeah. Who came in the league, what, you know, a couple years before, or a few years before, and got to play against each other a little bit. And, yeah, Len Bias was legit. Well, and I'm blanking on who was the number one pick in that draft. but But whoever it was, I think it was pretty good because Len Bias as a number two, I think, was in a lot of draft years would have been a number one overall pick. For sure. Like, that was the kind of talent the Celtics were getting. Right. Uh, It just happened to be, yeah, a pretty solid draft, especially at the front end. And, uh, you know, you talk about a team that, yes, had the likes of Larry Bird and Kevin McHale and Danny Ainge and, you know, uh, adding a guy like Len Bias and... um, we should also mention that uh, we're getting a few of these from Bill Simmons's book of basketball. Sure. <laughs> uh, he has a couple of those, and I've added a few, especially the more recent stuff since his book came out. Uh, but he mentions in that section where he's talking about this that uh, you know not only just adding his talent, but then the ability for him to spell guys like Larry Bird and McHale, let them rest more. And, you know, McHale played through a broken foot in the 87 playoffs. Yeah. Bird ended up having a bunch of back issues, maybe because he was overstretched a little bit in those couple of playoff years. Yeah. If you've got a Len Bias, you can lower the minutes on some of those other guys, and perhaps that extends that Celtics dynasty a few years at the very least. Right. So one of my like uh, favorite imaginary scenarios is what if the Sabonis and Len Bias things that both happen at the same time. Right. So you got an 86 of Sabonis in Portland, and then in the East you've got, you know, this even more stacked Celtics team than they had. Uh, man, the, the Bulls dynasty would have been way different. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my gosh. Well, and, uh, you know, not only does he maybe extend that Celtics dynasty, but also even after the likes of Bird and right. McHale and Parrish leave, he would give the Celtics more credibility in through the 90s, mm-hmm. where I think they had a, a decade there where they were kind of lousy exactly. up until adding Paul Pierce in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there there's things like that as well you don't think about where a fan base kind of, you know, and the, the Celtics fans are pretty spoiled based on how good they've been over the years, so I don't want to act like, oh, <laughs> oh, poor Celtics fans that they had to have like an eight-year stretch where right. it was kind of tough. <laughs> but, you know, that may have not even have happened if Bias was around. Right. Oh, yeah. So 
Here's a here's another interesting one. Uh, the 2007 Western Conference semifinals okay. uh, pitted the Phoenix Suns against the San Antonio Spurs, right? Mm-hmm. And in that series, uh, the Suns were, um, you know, they were the presumptive favorites. That was a team that uh, had the two-time MVP in Steve Nash. They had Amari Stoudemire, Boris Diaw, Raja Bell, Sean Marion. It was the Mike D'Antoni was the coach, the seven seconds or less. Mm-hmm. They were easily the league's best offensive team and were, you know, not terrible defensively. Um, you know, played at least okay defense. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, they had a, a really competitive series against San Antonio. Of course, San Antonio went on to win the championship that season. That was the fourth of, uh, or that was the third title in five seasons that they won in the mid-2000s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, obviously the Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Mono, Ginobili trio. Uh, but, in I believe it was game five of that series, or no, it was game four of the series, which the series ended up being tied after game four, two to two. Okay. But there was a play where Steve Nash uh, is driving down the sideline, and Robert Ory of the Spurs, who you know has uh, has come up already twice in this on right. the wrong end <laughs> of this what if chapter, uh, he comes up and basically hip checks Nash into the scorer's table, and um, you know it was kind it was a pretty dirty play. It wasn't a basketball play whatsoever. Yeah, and both both benches get up, and uh, I I was listening to a podcast recently where. It was funny, though, you know, it shows how valuable and how good the Spurs coaching has been. As soon as that play happened, all the Spurs coaches got up, stood up, turned towards their players and put their arms out to prevent them yeah. from leaving the bench. Mm. And the NBA rule is that if, uh, if you're a guy on the bench and you go onto the floor during an altercation, you're essentially adding to what could be a riot, and they don't want that. Right. Uh, so... Uh, the Spurs coaching staff all turned around and stopped anybody from leaving, whereas the Suns coaching staff were more worried about Steve Nash, you know, started walking towards him, and a couple players, including Amare Stoudemire and Boris Diaw, came out onto the floor. They were therefore suspended for the crucial Game 5 of that series. Yep. And it's especially tough given that it was those two guys, because it's one thing if it's, say, um, you know, just Amari Stoudemire and some other random bench guy. But Boris Diaw was Amari's backup. <laughs> so, you know, you've oh, got man. your your second best player in Stoudemire, uh, or third best, depending on how much you like Sean Marion. Uh, you know, him missing, and then Boris Diaw would fill in his absence, but he's going to miss the game as well. Uh, so, you know, that was kind of just too big of a hole for them to overcome. Yeah. They lose game five, nearly win game six, but end up losing. Uh, so that was uh, that was one of those where I feel like if that didn't happen, if those guys weren't suspended, Phoenix probably would have been the favorites to uh, to win that series and eventually win the title. Yeah, that's another really interesting one that I actually didn't know before I talked to you about those. Um, so that's another series that we'll probably have to watch at some point. Yes, definitely. Uh, the The next one uh, that I think is uh, is kind of interesting is talking about LeBron. And there's a couple of LeBron ones that I'd like to we can do back sure, to back sure. here. Uh, the first one being 
LeBron deciding to stay in Cleveland instead of making the decision to go to South Beach and the Miami Heat. Right. The the idea behind what's interesting about this is in the 2010 series with the Cavs and the Celtics, it felt like LeBron had a foot out the door and uh, yeah. and really didn't perform well at all in that series, and the Celtics ended up winning and eventually took the Lakers to seven games and lost. But... Uh, you know, personally, despite the the lack of talent that people claimed LeBron, you know, didn't have in Cleveland, they had solid role players that fit around easily the best player in the game. Yeah. And, you know, people talk about how good LeBron is now, but this was during the prime years where he was able to give maximum effort on both ends of the floor and was a first-team, second-team level, all-defensive guy combined with his offensive talents yeah uh you know and had the energy to if he he could have the ball in his hands in the entire game and still be able to produce uh so that was a situation where i think that Cavs team could have won in 2010 if he wasn't focused on the idea that oh i can't win here or else that'll make it harder to leave than if i already have my mind set on going to the heat and uh, for anyone that doesn't believe he had his mindset on going to the Heat, I uh, will always reference the fact that he changed his number mid-season of that 2010 year mm-hmm. from 23 to 6, claiming that it was in you know referential treatment to Michael Jordan. Right. But in reality, the reasoning is because Miami is the one NBA team that has Michael Jordan's jersey retired. Yep. Um, that uh, so he couldn't be number 23 there. So that was a way for him to switch and not have to deal with the process of changing the jersey number once he got there. Right. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, anyone that's like, well, maybe he actually felt that way. Well, he's 23, 23 now. now. <laughs> right. So, no, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. So that changes how the 2010 playoffs work out, I think. And also, it'd be interesting to see, you know... Miami really got LeBron's probably four of his best six or seven seasons of his what is going to be his career, yeah. especially consider, factoring in the energy and the defensive impact to go, to go with how good of an offensive player he is. Yeah. Uh, it would have really been interesting to see and if he would have been able to win a title or two had he stayed in Cleveland that entire time. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of the supporting cast for him at that time. I remember, I think it was 2010, that whole uh, year, there were all those Nike commercials with the puppet LeBron versus puppet Kobe type stuff. But yeah, I I fully expected it to be Lakers and Cavs for the next few years going at each other. Right. Um, LeBron was, I mean, all of the Jordan comparisons were starting to ring true. I was thinking we were going to look at another, you know, the Cavs being there in the finals every year. Um that's why I never understood when everyone's like, well, he couldn't win in, in Cleveland. That's why he had to go to the, to the Heat. Like, They were contenders. They were like a favorite to be there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never understood that. Um, yeah, uh, you know more about the, the supporting cast of the Cavs, though. How do you think it would shape out for uh, the Cavs in those next years, you know, 2011, 2012? Well, I mean, I definitely understand the value, especially at this stage of his career, of having like a Kyrie Irving 
because he's a guy that LeBron can throw the ball to and kind of just rest at times on offense, and I think that's super valuable, and that's one of the things I think they lack a little bit now with this current form of the Cavs team. Yeah. Uh, but um, So that was something they were missing, but again, back to you know the fact that he was younger back in the 2010 through 14 time period, he had the energy to to have the ball pretty much the entire game and still dominate. Uh, so, you know, the supporting cast wasn't great. I, I really loved Anderson Vergeau. I thought mm-hmm. he was a perfect role player. He was a guy that, uh, you know, was a really high basketball IQ, really high effort. Uh, he could uh, run the pick and roll extremely well. He was an underrated passer. Mm-hmm. He also got better the couple of years after LeBron left Vergeau. Oh, wow. uh, and I think his best year was like... Uh, 2013 or something where he averaged about 14 points and 14 rebounds a game. Wow. So he was a guy that I think would have been around and would have been a really nice complimentary piece. Mm-hmm. Obviously not an all-star caliber guy, but really solid supporting player. You still had Mo Williams, who oh, that's right. you know, was a solid shooter uh, and kind of a perfect offensive point guard where he could handle some pick-and-roll duties, but was a really good spot-up guy, could play off of LeBron really well. Right. Uh, you know, you had you had guys like uh, Anton Jameson. Okay, uh, yeah. That, uh, they added uh, late in that run with the, the first time LeBron was with the Cavs. Uh, you know, not a great defensive player, but a talented offensive guy. Well, and Cavs had, you know, a pretty good Danny Ferry, who is a pretty good GM in my eyes, yeah. that, that made some nice moves that, uh, you know, if LeBron would have stayed, I feel like could have could have done some interesting things with the roster and added to it yeah. uh, in ways that could have helped as the years went on. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it was it would have been a gamble, certainly, sure. for LeBron, especially if he's, you know, I think he's very focused on his legacy and, you know, realizing that players that don't win championships aren't talked about amongst the greatest of all time. Uh, and, you know, you stay in Cleveland without, really a second all-star caliber player. It's a gamble whether you would win one. Right. But him doing that a single time would have been so impressive to me exactly. that maybe it would have made up for it a little bit. Right. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good one here as far as a what-if. Uh, the other LeBron-related one that I think is interesting is the idea of him come, when he came back to Cleveland. In large part, he, he was able to come back, you know, the... The whole fairy tale story is that he's coming home and that Miami <laughs> was his college experience and, and all that sort of thing. Right. Uh, I think that's all BS. I think it came down to the fact that the Cavs actually had some talent now. They won the lottery three out of the four years he was gone. Right. Adding Kyrie Irving, adding a Tristan Thompson with the fourth pick in, in one of the drafts, mm-hmm. um, adding uh, a guy like... Uh, Andrew Wiggins, who they were able to trade for Kevin Love. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, Anthony Bennett was the other one that they were able to use in that package for Kevin oh, yeah. Love. So having Kyrie and Kevin Love there was, a, a, to me, a key reason why LeBron was willing to go back, plus the idea that he, you know, didn't want to be hated and, uh, you know, wanted to, you know, get back on the good side of the people of Ohio. Right. But I think to him it was more about the players and winning, having chances and opportunities to win a championship, which they've won one, or he's won one since right. he's been back. Uh, my my 
my interesting what if is what if the Cavs don't win those lotteries? What if they don't have that crazy talent that LeBron can say, okay, I know with Kyrie and Kevin Love I can compete for titles. Does he come back? I say no. Because uh, I don't think you make that move to Miami if, you know, uh, unless that's your main goal is trying to win titles. Uh, and at that point, there were already talks about, like, well, Dwayne Wade and, and Bosch and all this. I mean, it worked for a few years, but it's starting to slow down a little bit. Yeah. So I think he got out as soon as he saw they were losing a step a little bit, and he was like, okay, i got to go somewhere else. And he seems like a genius, especially considering all the unfortunate things that have happened with Chris Bosch's career right. with the blood clots. Right. Yeah. And and who could have predicted that right. stuff, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know where else LeBron would have gone. You know, if he stays in Miami, uh, obviously that stuff with Bosch, I mean... He's not going to be on a contending team for long if he stays with Miami. Right. Uh, even and Wade with, would continue to decline with age. Exactly. So where else does he go? Does he jump ship and try and go to Chicago with Rose? I mean, Rose still has his knee injuries and stuff, so maybe that wouldn't have worked out. Well, yeah. By by the time the near the end of the Miami run, right, Rose, Rose, Rose had already had several knee injuries, and most people were questioning whether he would ever. Yeah, you know, make it back. So, and you know the idea that was good about Cleveland as well as he stayed in the Eastern Conference, which has been the weaker conference, right. easier path to the final. Which he's had that incredible streak, which is impressive, but it's still as much easier to make it to the finals in the East than it has been in the West. So, right. you know, you you compare a team that oh yeah, there's there were probably teams in the Western Conference that had a lot of talent that he would have felt he could have competed with, but then he's got that really challenging Western Conference gauntlet of powerhouses that he's got to get through, and each round would be like an NBA Finals. Right, and if LeBron's sole focus is winning titles, he's going to go where it's easiest to do that. So he's probably going to stay Eastern Conference. I can't remember with that year who were the other contenders um, at that time when he came back to, what are we talking, like 2015? Yeah, Uh, 2015 was the first year, yep. So and the, who else was... the first year that they uh, um, that they made the finals was uh, the Atlanta Hawks. Okay, that was the year they won sixty games with Al Horford and Paul mm-hmm. Millsap and Kyle Korver. Uh, you know, but it was it was kind of a team that overachieved a little bit and right. was a nice story. Was a really fun team to watch, but right. uh, didn't have that high high end talent to truly compete with a LeBron led team. <laughs> yeah, uh, so. Um, this is more of a future what-if, but uh, have you given any thought to what you think LeBron might do after this season? Uh, because, you know, the rumors, and I don't know if you've heard of this or not, but there are four potential destinations, according to sources that have spoken to LeBron, four teams he might go to next year. Okay. One being staying with the Cavs. Okay. The other Eastern Conference option is the Philadelphia 76ers joining up with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Oh, wow. Okay. That's then, one way to work the process, is <laughs> just get LeBron James. Okay, keep going. Well, and there are, there are actually people in Philadelphia holding up signs saying, like, LeBron, end the process, come to Philly. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and then there are signs with the Los Angeles Lakers, who are another one of the teams mm. that... And these are a lot worse than that one. The first one I just told you is L.A. Bron, LeBron. 
Oh man, yeah, that's yeah, so it's, lame. It's really bad. <laughs> um, uh, but the Lakers, the thing they've got going for them is they've got a group of of young, like solid players in Lonzo Ball, who has right. a promising future at point guard. Brandon Ingram, a young small forward that's really long, uh, averaging about sixteen a game this year. You know, solid mid range uh, player that can get to the basket a little bit with his length. Uh, they've got a Julius Randle. Um, and they've got a Kyle Kuzma, who was a draft pick this year. That's mm. that's solid. Josh Hart. So they've got a, a decent young nucleus. None of the guys are probably going to be superstars, mm-hmm. but solid role guys. And then the Lakers will have two max salary cap space uh, to get LeBron and potentially a Paul George, maybe. Oh wow! To add to that group. So that's really the Lakers' case. Yeah. And then the other one would be the Houston Rockets. No, uh, who would the Rockets need to give up? That's because the, the idea of Paul Harden and LeBron on the same team is like so scary, right? Like those um, are like three of the most elite passers in the game. Yeah, one thing the Rockets would have to do is somehow get off of Ryan Anderson's salary, which he's going to be making twenty plus mil a year next year. So he would definitely be a guy that would have to go whether they'd have to attach multiple draft assets to for some team to take that uh, yeah. my, you know they would you do that if you could get LeBron right. and the idea then would be that maybe LeBron and Paul might take a slight pay cut like they did in Miami when LeBron Wade and Bosh came together right. and you'd probably have to get rid of one or two other maybe of the rotation guys as well lose a little bit of depth but again, you're adding that high end talent, <laughs> right? Uh, so that would be so. You know, let's let's put you you're in LeBron's shoes out of those four <laughs> options. What do you like? And don't forget the Cavs. Uh, you know, they've got a likely top five draft pick coming in this uh, in this draft from the Brooklyn Nets that they're going to be able to add to their roster. And you know, they could potentially trade that pick for a veteran player if they wanted a more win now move. If LeBron told them they would commit, or they could just, you know, develop that guy, and LeBron would have a guy that he could sort of pass the torch to. Uh, so, so yeah, what, uh, out of those four, uh, I guess, yeah, what would be your choice, and what do you think LeBron might do, might um, end up doing? Man, that's a tough one. I would, I'd want to stay in the Eastern Conference, if I could. Because, like we were saying, it's it is a much easier road. Even though Toronto's looking a lot better, uh, Boston it's closer <laughs> in the yeah. East than it's been in the past. But I still think it's an easier road than to have to go up against the Warriors and the Rockets and all these other ones. Now, if you're on the Rockets team, that may make it a little bit easier. But I mean, that Warriors team is crazy good. Yeah. So I'd rather just stay away from them as long as you can. <laughs> Hope someone else knocks them out, and then you can take on the other one in the finals. Um, which makes this 76ers team look all right. Um, now, how much would the 76ers have to give up in order to get LeBron? Did you talk about that a little bit? Not much. They've, they're going to have about, I believe, 23-plus million in salary cap space. Okay. Um, they... Uh, 
they would they would potentially have to lose again some depth like uh you know they signed JJ Redick to a one year deal yeah um unless he'd be willing to come back for a small amount of money to play with LeBron maybe that maybe. would happen but they might have to lose out on a guy like him and re- without re-signing him yeah uh, you know they would have to probably try and figure out a way to trade like a Jared Bayless who's making about nine million this year yeah so um but you know you do a couple of things and you can start to get into that thirty five plus million which is right around what you need for a max salary um but yeah, it wouldn't have to be too much. they would be able to keep the likes of um their main core, which would be Embiid, Simmons, Robert Covington. Uh, who's a 3-and-D wing, and, you know, their first overall pick this year, Markel Fultz, they could keep mm. all of those guys uh, and add LeBron, and, you know, when you have LeBron, you've got an opportunity to adding some more guys, like, on the minimum that would want to play for a championship contender. I might lean towards... I mean, the Rockets, that's super tempting. Uh, and I guess... To say the one negative I would say about the Sixers would be the fit of LeBron and Ben Simmons. Right. Ben Simmons, not much of a shooter at all. Yeah. So And he's best with the ball in his hands. Yeah. Maybe LeBron would be, you know, at this stage of his career, a little bit more content allowing a guy like Simmons to handle the ball more and playing off some and maybe, maybe putting more effort on defense and rebounding and those sorts of things, but... LeBron also has a pretty big ego as well. He likes to hold the ball, and he's great with it. It makes sense why he'd want to control it. So it looks like maybe West Coast might be the the better option. So who would have the better three-point shooting to surround LeBron with? Because with Houston and L.A., that might be the deciding factor. If you can just spread the floor around LeBron, it makes it that much easier when it gets to the finals. Or maybe this is a better way to look at it. Which one is going to be able to match up with the Warriors better uh, defensively? Right. Because right? um, Embiid would be great, but if they can't guard, if there's a weak spot in that pick-and-roll matchup with Curry or Durant... Well, the interesting thing about the Sixers defensively is, you know, with Embiid... Ben Simmons has been pretty solid moving his feet. He's oftentimes guarded point guards this year because he plays that on the offensive end. Robert Covington is a really good defensive guy. Uh, You know, a guy like um, Dario Saric at about 6'9 is, you know, at least an okay defender. He's got good size. Yeah. Uh, So, to me, the Sixers have, uh, and they've been a top five defense this year already without a guy like Mm -hmm. LeBron. So to me, if you're talking just defense, it'd probably be the Sixers. Yeah. But the offensive firepower, the shooting, would you'd have to favor Houston. Right. I I know I've been talking about this for a while, and you just asked a simple question: which one would you pick? No, it's a I, very it's a very interesting topic. I'm yeah. glad we kind of <laughs> dove deep on this. Uh, if you're interested in developing the younger talent and sticking around for a while, L.A is what I'd pick, uh, because it is interesting. Some of those young guys in there, I think you could maybe craft a good roster on there, but I would, if you're trying to win now, I'd pick the Rockets. Yeah. And that's what he did before with the Heat. Like, I'm just going to go where the super, you know, make another super team, let's just do this. Right. Um, and it would be like, if you want to make like the sort of Jenga analogy, okay, where uh, you've got, 
LeBron joins the, the the heat and he takes out a piece and then it's like, oh, well, Durant, he takes out the real crucial piece going to Golden State. Yeah. LeBron going to Miami with Harden and Paul would be like taking out the final piece before it's about to crash. Right, exactly. Uh, and then it's... It's like, you know, whatever you could do, I'm going to just do a little bit more. Um, right. Yeah, that would be that would be insane having a Chris Paul, Harden, LeBron because, you know, what the Warriors have done, having two top five guys and two guys probably in the top 15, top 20, is crazy. Right. But this would be three guys <laughs> in arguably the top six or seven right. in the league. Oh, my gosh. What do you think this would do with LeBron's legacy, too? Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, he's already up there. We both have him solidly at number two right now Yeah. Uh, for best players of all time. Uh, that's a huge move to go with that type of talent, you know, and we're getting ahead of ourselves with this. We don't know if he's actually going to do it, but, um, you know, all of the titles that he may win with that team, how much do we, how high do we rank those then when you're joining that type of talent? Right. Which is where like low key, like a team like the Sixers or a team that is not on his short list of the four that I think would be interesting would be the Milwaukee Bucks with Giannis. Oh, yeah. Uh, And the one way that the Bucks could potentially do that is with a sign and trade with Jabari Parker and Parker goes back to the Cavs and LeBron comes to Milwaukee then. Uh, And they may have to throw in Maybe a Matthew Della Vadova, which he could go back to Cleveland. Okay. That'd be an hey. interesting story. And, I always liked and, him. Yeah. And one or two other pieces they might have to let go, but uh, you could you could make a LeBron, Giannis, Eric Bledsoe, uh, Chris Middleton sort of foundation, which would be really good as well. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the... The interesting thing about him joining a Philadelphia or a Milwaukee is those are teams that haven't really done anything yet. Mm -hmm. And it would be like, you know, if he comes in there and they win a title, it would, even though they, both of those teams have a ton of talent, it would feel like he was more a part of really pushing them up a level or even two than it would in the case of Houston, where if they're already this year competing with the Warriors and going seven games with Golden State in the Western Conference Finals. It's like, same in the instance where Durant joins a team that barely lost in the finals the previous year. You're just joining a team that was pretty much there, and you're just putting them over the top, which to me isn't as valuable. Right, yeah. But, I I don't know, I think that's what he might choose, though. If, If he's just looking to get the upper hand and be on the best team, then... If you're hedging your bets, yeah, I'll go play with those guys. Right. You know, even though the competitor in me is like, you should, you know, have more pride in that and try and get on a good team and lead them to win instead of just joining up with the other best kids on the block because, man, the East is going to be really sad if LeBron leaves. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, and yeah, like the, the, uh, the fact that the Sixers and the Celtics are kind of up and coming and hopefully Milwaukee gets it together with Giannis. Uh, you know, you've got, yeah, a few up-and-coming teams, but you're right, without without the LeBron there, uh, the best player going from one conference to the other shifts the power quite significantly. Yeah. When even right now, it's, uh, it's pretty in favor uh, of the West. Thank you so much for listening to Duncan Dynasty. For Anthony Brown, I am Garrett Bouguet. 
Next week, we'll have even more NBA What If discussions to uh, bring to you, so stay tuned for that. Have a great day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.